uh, saying all the vows, you don't really think about till death do us part until that actually happens. And I was left a chronologically younger widow with a then adolescent child and no idea of what to do or who to talk to or what direction to turn in. I was left in emotional ruin, in mm. financial ruin, uh, certainly in physical ruin. My name is Paul Harvey and this is Life, Passion and Business. We're about helping you explore, finding your passion for life and the work that you do. But it's so much more than that. It's about finding clues to the big life questions. What does it mean to be successful? What is the meaning of life? If you're looking for more, then join me on this journey, where together we will discover through interviews, tools and tips, how to live life full of meaning, passion and purpose. Life and death are way beyond our control, but we can change our reaction. My guest on the show today is here with a story of loss, grief and recovery. She's an international speaker with four books to her name. Carol Brody Fleet lives in Southern California and started a career in the legal profession. She met an amazing man, a Vietnam veteran and a serving police officer. They had a daughter and life was good. After 15 years in the legal profession, the hours were not compatible with family life, so Carol moved on into a senior position within the beauty and cosmetics industry. Now in the late 90s, Mike was diagnosed with motor neuron disease, an illness that was brought to prominence by the late Stephen Hawkins, who had the disease for many years. However, Carol's husband had a more aggressive form and he degenerated very quickly, dying within just two years. Unlike most of my guests, asking questions about passion and success is not so easy when the journey was not a choice. But this story is about rebuilding a life at a time when most of the resources for grief were unhelpful. It was a time before the internet and social media. Carol had five years of widowhood and found a route to the point where she was inspired to write. What started as scribbled note on a legal pad became the best-selling book and the beginning of a new career. That book, Widows in Stilettos, is a chronological manual to help women out of grief and help them find a new story for their life. It has been republished for a second edition and that is a testament to its success and the good that it's doing in the world. Carol's mission and her why is to help those through loss and bereavement. In the process, she has created a community of supportive women around her. Today, Carol is an accomplished writer with four books. She is a regular contributor to Chicken Soup for the Soul and the Huffington Post. She's a speaker appearing on stages, radio, TV and podcasts like this one. So let's join the conversation with Carol Brody Fleet. So look, this is life, passion and business. And we're all about the journey, the journey that we take in this thing called life. Where did it all begin for you? Oh, my goodness. Well, it began and remains in Southern California, where I was born and raised. And after doing the usual meandering that teenagers do and figuring out where they're going to be, I actually hail from the legal profession. That's where I'm from by education and degree. 
And I did what so many do. I grew up, got married to a wonderful man who was a 28-year veteran of his police department here in Southern California. Wow. He was also a veteran of the armed forces and did two tours of duty in Vietnam. Yeah, that was rough. And he came home, uh, was honorably discharged and went right into law enforcement, uh, where he ended his career setting national records in the seizures of drug and drug money. And many of those records stand today. So wow. I'm, wow, wow. Incredibly, I'm incredibly proud of that. Wow. Um, we had one daughter, Kendall, mm-hmm. um, who is all grown up with a family of her own now. And, um, and I was in the legal profession and we were busy being a family. And that's where we were in the late nineties when my husband, Mike was diagnosed with ALS. Um, that's more commonly known here as Lou Gehrig's disease in the United Kingdom and in Canada and in the Commonwealth, it's referred to as MND Mm -hmm. motor neuron disease. It, it is a neurodegenerative disease. It's related to things like Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis. They're all kind of like cousins. And it's the same um, thing they, that uh, Stephen Hawking's had, isn't it? Yes, it is. And the remarkable thing about Stephen Hawking is that he lived what is considered an extraordinarily long life with the illness. Um, the average diagnosis or prognosis, I'm sorry, from diagnosis to death is between two and five years. Wow, and that's tragic. Quick. Yeah, it is. And tragically, Mike was at the leading edge of that. So from diagnosis to his passing was just over two years. And uh, that set us on a journey that nobody signs up for. Uh, you, you you don't think about that when you're standing up in the big white dress and uh, saying all the vows. You don't really think about till death do us part until that actually happens. And I was left a chronologically younger widow with a then adolescent child and no idea of what to do or who to talk to or what direction to turn in. I was left in emotional ruin, in Mm. financial ruin, uh, certainly in physical ruin because as a caregiver, a, a chronic and, acu- and then ultimately acute disease like that takes a terrible toll also on the caregiver and on the family too. So that journey was one that you don't expect. And it starts out, I'll be honest, as a very dark journey indeed. But the good news is that uh, we found our way through the darkness. And happily, now I am able to help others do the same. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, that that's quite a journey to go on, isn't it, really? Um, and and it's like it, it kind of makes my questions a bit kind of invalid, really, on some level, because it's a it's a journey without choice. That's true. This is a club that nobody signs up for willingly. It is a path that nobody actively seeks out. But there you are. And you ultimately you have a choice. You, you we can't control life and death, Paul. We know that. But we can control our reactions to it. Yes, we can decide how our path is going to be going forward. We can decide and control our reactions to everything, but perhaps nothing more important than how we are going to carve and couch and inform a healing journey, regardless of what you're healing from. Mm. We have the ability to do that. So, I mean, I mean, obviously this podcast is about you, not necessarily about your husband. And, and so I mean, so the, it's the journey with you we explore. So you went into the legal profession. So did you leave the legal profession once you got married or did you stay in that profession? 
No, I actually, I stayed in that profession uh, for, I was in that profession for 15 years. Mm. And frankly, I, I love the law. I still do. But the the dynamics and the, and the politicking in the profession, it's a very high stress position at all times. And I was missing out on raising my child and mm. spending time with my husband who was working anywhere between 75 and 100 hours a week. And so I did leave the legal profession and I took a position in the upper management levels of the beauty and cosmetic industry. Um, and you might understand why I would favor an industry like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's where I was actually when Mike was was diagnosed. Right. OK, that's fine. So, I mean, you know, because my question normally is where is the passion? Where's the drive in all of this? But I can't I don't know how to ask that question for of you, really, because you, you, you can't be passionate about caring for someone. You can, I guess, in terms of that you're, you're caring for them, but it's not something you would set out and say, this is, the, this is the pinnacle of what I set out to do. That's true, but there is certainly a passion about my life today. Right. So it's absolutely a legitimate question. I just might've given you a curveball and that's, that's okay. But my passion, first and foremost, and I know you relate, is that my passion is always gonna be my family. Because without them, there is no success. There is no, there is no drive. My family is what drives me. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to bookend the, the sad story with um, the fact that I actually married a fellow countryman of yours. And um, I was married, I, we've been married, we just celebrated our 12th wedding anniversary. I was widowed for almost 10 years. Uh, when we got married. So I did spend a long time in the, in the driver's seat of widowhood, but um, that, so there is absolutely passion and there's passion for what I do now and the work that I am so privileged to do now. And that is absolutely a driving force without passion. Who are we? Well, you know, I mean, there's that, there's that, you know, I, I think we ought to have so at least some connection with the work that we do that's how I think I feel about it but there are some people that would say you know your passion doesn't need to be in your work it can be anywhere and you you know you can just do your work to do your work so just to just to fund and you can I guess as long as you as long as that work sits and works with your values is all I think that can think about it it's like when it doesn't hit the values then it's you know you how can I how can I describe this? You can't be passionate about being vegetarian and go and work for a butcher. <laughs> That's true. That's absolutely true. And I'm and I'm fortunate to be able to do something for which I am passionate. But I do recognize, and I have absolutely been one of those people where you go to work, you know, you do your nine to five and you get out. And I understand that. But I and I in in that I recognize too the blessings that being passionate about what I do brings. And I think passion in this particular arena that I've chosen to set up camp in is vital because it's that passion that helps me show others, mm. you know, I, I know you're in pain right now and I get that pain. I've lived that pain, but you don't, that's not a, that's not a destiny. It's a, it's a false destiny appearing real. And if you let me take your hand, I can show you how to get through. And for me, that takes a measure of passion. And fortunately for me, that's very organic. And mm -hmm. So you said you were 10 years a widow. What, what did you do in those 10 years? <laughs> um, I dated a lot. 
whole other show. <laughs> did, you, did you get back into the? Did you get back into work, or did you start this 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 project that you're doing now? Oh no, I didn't start writing until about five years after I became widowed, and there was that there was a reason for that. I want I didn't want to write a memoir because. Uh, writing a, a story about my sad story, yes, it's sad, but at the at the crux of it is how is my sad story going to help somebody else? Just telling the story to me, it's just a sad story, but I wanted to be able to provide education and advice and direction and to knowledgeably and wisely do that. I had to go through things like the financial and legal transitions that every single widow has to go through regardless of age, how long you were married, same sex, hetero, it doesn't matter. We all go through the legal and financial aspects of transitioning from married to widowed. Then there's the emotional ramifications. There's dating again, there's all of those things. And I wanted to be able to speak from personal experience and either, you know, one of two columns, this worked really well for me or don't let this happen to you. Yeah. Because I did make mistakes. So that took for me about five years. And that's when I started writing the first book. Oh, right. Okay. And so, and has that, I guess that's con continued for you because you, you've written several books, I seem to remember. I have, I, and I had no way of knowing, you know, some, some, things about journeys are delightful surprises. And I had no idea when I started jotting down notes on a legal pad, because I am a dinosaur and that's how all my books start is jotting down notes. And you seem to remember um, you tend to write in the middle of the night, isn't it? I do. I am a middle of the night person. <laughs> we can be honest with your listeners and say that our first meeting was two o'clock in the morning, my time. Yeah, I, I kind of, they, they, yeah, we had this book meeting booked and I looked at, looked at and I thought, is she sure about this? Because this is like really late. <laughs> this is like, it was just in the, it was just like, I don't know. I actually think I sent you an email. Are you sure you want to have a conversation? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm fine. <laughs> I, completely, because I'm up anyway. And that's uh, when I do a lot of these shows uh, out of the United Kingdom are in the overnight hours for me. And I'm happy to do it. I love it. Um, so, yeah, I'm a night owl. And that's when most of the books and the articles, and I'm also a, a regular contributor to Chicken Soup for the Soul for their book series. So that's when a lot of the, the magic happens is uh, in the overnight hours. And, um, and it's, that's when my energy level comes out to play. And that's when all the really good stuff happens. So, okay. So take us on the journey then. So you wrote your first book and mm -hmm. I mean, were you back in, were you back in work at this time, working back in the legal profession? I will. No, I didn't go back to the legal profession. I stayed in the beauty and cosmetics industry because it allowed me a great deal of latitude and flexibility with my schedule. Because uh, again, my daughter was pre-adolescent when her dad died. So it was absolutely paramount that I could be a mom, yeah. but I did have to go back to work because mortgages still need to be paid. Yeah. So I did go back to work and I stayed with that position until I believe I was just signing with my with a literary agency when I decided now I'm going to go full time with writing mm. because I can't I can't divide my time I can't split my focus no I've always been I've, I've got four books now to my credit um the first book that uh, Widows Wear Stilettos has just released into second edition and that's very very exciting for an author uh it's uh, it means that your first book was um extremely successful. So I'm really excited about that. But I do have four books and they're all traditionally published, no self-publishing. And I wouldn't even 
I don't know what Amazon publishing is. I knew that I know that they have a publishing arm. Kindle, I've always it's, said a, it's a Kindle book, basically. I mean, uh, that point is the publishing industry has now changed. That's the route you have to go now. You don't get invited unless you've got a Kindle book. You know, but, I honestly since and I, in the grand scheme of things, I've only been an author, you know, 15, 16 years. Yeah. And in that time, the, the entire paradigm of the publishing industry has changed 180 degrees. Yeah. I mean, just the, just the sheer number of bookstores that have closed, you know, um, book tours don't look like they did in the mid aughts. So it is, um, it's, it's very interesting to see how, how things have changed. But I, again, I'm a dinosaur, so I'm still yeah. writing a proposal and the agent submits it and sells it. And then the publisher goes. Well, you've got history, it. so they'll, 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 they'll love you because you've got history. Yeah. So look, what, so um, you've obviously become an author. Is, 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 are you a full-time author now? Is that what you would call yourself? Yes, I, I, I'm a full-time writer. I'm also a media contributor. So I do spend my time a lot doing uh, radio shows, podcasts, television. Mm-hmm. Uh, that takes up a lot of time. And up until March of last year, um, I was doing a lot of personal appearances where I would you know, speak at conferences and retreats. And I would speak to the, the people who are in the bereavement industry and mm. who serve the bereaved or the uh, terminally ill or the people who are in grief. I also would speak to at writers conferences, you know, those who aspire to become Mm. a traditionally published author and how you go from a legal pad full of notes to a bookshelf in a major bookstore. Um, So I did a lot of personal appearances too. So all of that kind of converges together in my, in my job description. So yeah, let's say it, it sounds like you've you've created yourself the perfect role and you're and you're clearly passionate about it. Very much so. So how do you determine or measure success? That is that's such a great question because the obvious answer, I guess, would be book sales, except that's not a measure of success for me. It's nice. I mean, we all have to, we want to sell books, we want to earn money. But the measure of success to me is my mantra is just one more. If I can reach just one more widowed person today who is feeling despair, hopeless, like this is it for them, that there is no light at the end of a tunnel that isn't an oncoming train, that, uh, that, that sorrow is their destiny. If I can reach just one more person today and help them see a way through, not around or over, you know, you don't get over it. But if I can help just one more person, then I've succeeded. Then I've done my job. And by helping to create a community and a dialogue where once there was little, if any, um, that to me is a huge barometer of success. Mm, Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. And of course, you know, you have to sell books. That's obviously going to be part of it. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm happy to do it and thrilled when it happens. Although for me, it's a bit of a dichotomy because mm. like I said, every author wants to sell a book. Every author loves to hear the words bestseller. And I've been very blessed to hear that word numerous times. But when somebody purchases my book or comes up to me and says, I love your book, or I have all your books, you're happy as an author, but you know that if they've picked up your book, it's not for a good reason. So the it's first not, book was, it's, it's yeah. not happy. No, it's not a happy reason. The first book was about grief. What were the other the other books about? Um, they they were the same subject but different <laughs> takes. Um, Widows were stilettos was basically a chronology of 
you know, here you are, you've had the loss, now what? And it talks about everything from returning to the workplace, whether you've been out of it altogether or you're still in the middle of bereavement and you have to go back to work because that was certainly the case with me. It talks about dating again, falling in love, intimacy. It talks about how to handle your child's grief and help them when you can't even get out of your pajamas because that was me too. Mm. Um, it, it, takes kind of a humorous slant sometimes. For example, some of the goofy things that people say to you, I know they don't mean to be goofy necessarily, but they're goofy things and how to handle that when it happens. And there's even, there's fashion and beauty and diet and exercise tips in the first book as well. The second book, Happily Even After, was unique to the market. Super proud of this book. It's a question and answer book. And all the questions come from actual letters written by real widows to me over the years, because at one point I was getting anywhere between three and 4,000 letters and emails a wow. month. Wow. And so I would take, and everybody thinks that they're alone in their situation. Mm. And I would see a situation and think, I got 12 other widows who are writing to me about this. So what I did was I took those questions and separated them into chapters and answered these questions with commentary. So mm. there's no, there's no other book like that in the, in the marketplace. The third book, when bad things happen to good women, um, my, I was still driving in my lane, but the car got a little bigger and the lane got wider because I started addressing all manner of loss, all manner <laughs> of challenge. Um, and there are over 40 women contributed their stories to the book. And it's everything from, um, yes, obviously we talk about spousal, spousal loss, but there's also loss of a home, loss of a business, loss of a relationship, um, a broken engagement, uh, a um, when women suffer uh, miscarriage, uh, stillbirth, hysterectomy, infertility. Well, everything everything that there's an ending, there's a grief to it. I mean, as someone exactly someone and said it, to me, you can you can grieve the last chocolate in the box. That's right. And it, you, it's important to honor the, that loss and honor the grief, however you see fit. Yeah. But again, the stories are, to me, stories are best told by those who have lived them. Mm. So there were there are 40 women who were courageous enough to tell their stories. There are stories about women who are victim of stalking, horrendous stories, that women who are victims of catfishing. One woman who was a victim of a catfish lost $250,000. And how do you recover from that? And, and learn how to trust people again and learn how to trust yourself again. Mm. So that was the third book. And then the recent book, the most recent original content was released in 2018. And that's called Loss is a Four-Letter Word. And that's what I call a bereavement boot camp. And that was based on my bereavement boot camp series that I wrote for the Huffington Post. And in and amongst the boot camp uh, assignments were um, separate and distinct chapters about all kinds of different things. Again, it's kind of circling back to widowhood, which is my my home base. That's my nucleus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you certainly have been prolific and covered a lot of subjects, that's for sure. Um, we've had a few guests on the show that have, have had arrangements or, or kind of places around this. Um, Jane Duncan Rogers is one of our guests, one of our early guests, and she, she wrote a book about... Um, the end of life plan because her when her husband was diagnosed 
they went all through to this stage and at the last like a few weeks before he passed someone said have you have you done the list yet uh, and then what she so together they worked together to decide you know what he wanted on his death how he wanted his death to be what he wanted to wear what he wanted you know what and she realized there was a whole subject around this stuff it it is and it's it's a subject that along with most everything else surrounding loss that we avoid well the beauty you know, is when you're prepared for it when it happens you know you've got a plan rather than having to scrape around and find a plan that's that's true and at that at that moment because we uh we did much the same thing mm. probably two or three months beforehand when when we knew that obviously you don't know when but you know it's imminent you you just do yeah. and uh we we did formulate the exact same plan um right down to what he wanted to wear mm. um and i was panicking because i couldn't find the right you know there's the shirt that he wanted to wear um but uh we did the, the same thing it is very important so you know it's I an amazing transition to... that my cousin did the same i mean i i he lives way further south and he wasn't a close cousin so i never went to the funeral but from people who went to them and they said he planned the funeral he did everything he planned all the, the hymns and absolutely everything in the funeral and it was for him it was a project it was like he, he felt quite good about the fact he knows what they're going to do for him. <laughs> well, but, and, you know, the reason, at least, and I can only speak from my own experience, um, the reason is, is because especially if you're dealing with a long-term illness or infirmity <laughs> and you are, you're, you're dying by inches, yeah. you know, no matter, no matter what the illness is that's robbing you, um, certainly ALS uh, does that because, you know, your mind stays razor sharp, but your body betrays you and you become trapped to the point where you can't speak or eat or swallow. And, uh, and, but, but Mike had very clear ideas of what he wanted. And it was the only area of his life where he had control. You know, when you, when you talk about, um, do you want to go onto a respirator, a ventilator, which many ALS patients choose to do, and that's fine. Mike wasn't going to have that for a whole bunch of different reasons, but he wasn't going to have it. And he never wavered from that. And when, I, when I, I tried to argue with him about it at the beginning of the illness, and he says, you know what? I don't have any say about my body or anything that I do anymore, but this, th this I have a say in. And that's when I got it. It's about being able to control what little controllables you have left in your life. And if you have the ability to control how things are gonna go as your life comes to a close, then darn it, you, you, you seize that control and don't like anyone, the, anyone take it away from you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very, very important. And, um, and, you know, and it's people like you and Jane and, and some of the other people that I've connected with over the years that are really bringing this conversation to the fore because I think it's such an important conversation. It's I mean, sad, sadly, we, we put death in the wardrobe. Well, we gave death over to the, to the medical profession and then closed the door on it, didn't we? So, so well, that's and, this right. is, and this is why people struggle with grieving, I think, because we've just hidden this, this process. Well, we, again, we don't want to talk about loss because if we talk about it, it means it's going to happen to us. Right. You know, I, I, I remind people that surround the bereaved, you will not catch a severe case of death by being in our space. No, you won't, will you? It's a good point. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, I remember vividly when um, a, a gentleman, when he found out I was widowed, he started physically backing away from me. And he put like two fingers up, like in the shape of a cross. <laughs> 
And I even, be, I mean, I'm one of those people where sometimes my filter doesn't work. Sometimes my edit button gets stuck. And before I could even stop myself, I just looked at him and said, really, it's not contagious. Yes. Indeed. You know, it was, we are a, a death denying, loss defying society. And the problem with that is that not talking about it doesn't make loss stop. It's not going to go away. It just keeps us ill prepared for what we are all going to eventually face. Mm. And by shutting down somebody's grief, whether you're telling someone to get over it or don't cry or what they, what they, the dearly departed would have wanted for you, you are denying somebody the right to grieve, the right to mourn. When you tell somebody, well, you weren't married very long, so it should be easier for you. Or the converse of that, you were married for 50 years. You should be grateful. Hmm. Loss is loss is loss. And it's profound and it's deep and it hurts. And everybody has the right to mourn that loss. Hmm, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So my, my next question would be about contribution, but I clearly know what your contribution is to the world and to the people, you know, and, and, and in the books and the, and the other women that you support. So to flip that on its head, how do you contribute to yourself? I'm so glad you asked that question because I am, was terrible at that, actually. And it wasn't until I realized that I was terrible at it and that my own health was suffering in all manner, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. And my, my latest contribution to Chicken Soup for the Soul was an installment called Making Me Time. Mm. So... When the pandemic really offered a non-negotiable choice yes. in, take, in taking this time, you know, I'm not on the road. Um, I, the, the second edition is updated. It's finished. What am I going to do? And that is when I learned how to commit to myself. And in doing so, that I wasn't being selfish. I wasn't less of a person. I wasn't denying uh, my husband or my daughter or grandkids or anybody um, that I was now taking care of myself. And a year later, I've lost a significant amount of weight. I am off um, certain medications that I had to be on. Um, I am stronger. I am sleeping better at night. I am, I'm really dedicated to these, these days and times where I am working out and in a class, I am uh, indulging in guided meditation. I am doing these things now as a part of a routine rather than as something I do on the sly if I have time and I'm not tired and the moon is full and it's not raining or something. So that is, that's a lesson that I've come to in the last year or so. And I have a feeling I'm going to be writing about it soon. <laughs> yeah, I have to say self-care is, is um, what I've come to realize is that we're on this earth for us. We are, we are here for us, our body, our life. Yes. And too many people arrive here and think it's the job it's the career it's 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 the status it's all these things but which yes they are but they're actually reflections of you and it's the you that's important and when you burn yourself out for the sake of the dollar or the company or what have you it it doesn't help you in the end you're going to have to pay for that in the end well and i actually i learned that in a very hard lesson um when again referring to the fact that i did make mistakes 
uh, back in the day um, as a caregiver, I viewed asking for help or accepting help as failure. Mm. I saw it as weakness. I thought that I needed to be able to tend to a terminally ill husband, be the, the, the sole breadwinner and raise a child and keep her life normal in quotation marks. And to ask for any help would be a failure. It would be a weakness. And it wasn't until one day I woke up with shingles Mm. at a young age. Mm. And um, my mother actually threatened me. She said, if you don't get help into this house, I will. And not one to, you know, argue with my mother very successfully. We did get caregiving help into the house for the last year of Mike's life. Um, The caregiver would come in 12 hours a day, six days a week. And then I would take the overnight hours and Sunday Mm. and, and care for him. So it was that lesson. And that's actually part of the contribution of chicken soup for the soul. Here's what happens when you don't take care of yourself and you don't pay attention to yourself and you have to stop realizing or thinking that, taking care of yourself is somehow selfish mm-hmm. or that you're weak for asking for assistance with whatever it is you need help with. That was really a game changing experience for me. I, I mean, to, to caveat that, because I mean, I know some people that on this call uh, will be involved in projects or business and they think they need to push, they need to, and I think pushing is yes. okay, but you must set a deadline when you're pushing, if you're going to have to push through something, you're going to have to, you must really must say, okay, I'm doing this for this amount of time. Right. And that, that deadline must not slip. Yeah. Because you have be- to, you have to walk away. Yes. But otherwise what happens is if you let the deadline slip, it becomes normal. And then that's what happens. You push and you push and you push, and then something happens. In your case, it was shingles. That's right. That's other right. cases, other cases I've heard, you know, other cases, it's, it's the health normally goes, the body normally goes, no. <laughs> yeah the body reminds you that there are limits and if you don't set limits for yourself your body or your emotional well-being or your psyche something is going to give at some point Mm. so you can either set those deadlines or those deadlines will be set for you yeah and and i'm saying that out of the experience you know i've had 200 conversations on here and and, you know and the number of people that have pushed themselves to burnout Yes. I mean, one, one of my guests, um, she was a banking, something in the banking industry and working on a project. And she sat at her desk 24 hours solid working at her desk and didn't go to the toilet because she was so desperate to get this job done by the tip. Oh, my gosh. You know, and, yeah. and, you know, and bless her heart. Nobody gives you a medal at the end of the day. No, for that no. level. Oh, oh, we got it done. Yeah, we, yeah, we, no did, we, we did it. Let's let's give you a round of applause. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Next. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one, yeah, no, no one's doing that. So, you know, if if you aren't taking care of you, you are no good to anybody else. Whether it's your family, your employer, uh, a, a community that you may serve, you have to be good to yourself first. Yeah. So look, I, I'm so pleased that you are looking after yourself because it because it clearly is important and uh, and and that you know it, and I'm, you know it's great that you've got a process for yourself. So I mean, what is okay. the one question you want people to ask themselves, or what's the one question you like people to ask you? The the one question that I would love people to ask me is what is my why? You know, a lot of people ask me how, <clears throat> whether it's you know how do I get through this or how do I get published, or how do I get started, or how? And that's great, because that's why why I'm here. But no, but rarely do people say, why do you do what you do? 
Tell us, why do you do it? Because, Paul, when I became widowed, there was no resource readily available. That's my, my, I don't go bother with things like stages and what have you. I go from shock or, you know, terrible situation to, okay, now what are we going to do? We, you know, this is a plan. We we're going to do this and this is how it's going to go out. And proactivity for me has always been the healing factor. And I had no sense of direction. I read wonderful grief recovery books, but they were all mostly based in inspiration or, you know, the sun will come out tomorrow and, you know, you've got this and that's all well and fine. But how do I get my benefits from the government? And how do I help my child when I'm sitting in a dark room and I don't know how to get up and turn on a light? because your life is completely upended. And how do I cope with those people who are saying goofy or insensitive or unsupportive things? And I don't know how to cook for less than, you know, the family that I'm used to. And that's what I was looking for and I couldn't find. And that is when my mantra became, if you can't find it, create it. Mm. And that's my why. My why was born because I can't stand the thought of someone thinking and feeling the same way that I did. See, back then, Paul, there was no such thing as social media. The internet was in its infancy. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, you had your choice of chat rooms or porn. And I didn't need either one of those things at that point in time. We didn't have the internet as as a vital tool and a resource in helping get us the support and the community that we all need. And There was no community of chronologically younger widowed that I could find. And all these years later now, what a gift to have been able to play a small part in creating a community and a dialogue. And when, you know, everybody says, well, there's no manual when you become widowed. Well, I've tried to fix that too. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my why is because I was there. And I don't want anybody else to have to be there alone, struggling, in despair, thinking, well, this is it for me. And I guess I'm just going to coast until it's my time to go. I couldn't live like that. And I didn't want to model that kind of alleged recovery for my daughter either. So that's my why. You know, how is important. The how is very important. But so is the why. Absolutely. So if, I mean, what are you doing now? Are you, are you running groups and things? Or will you be running groups and things? How do people get in touch with you? Do they, is, or is it just the books? What's the process? What's, what is the, it you offer them? Well, on? you know, years ago, we did have a support, an international support group program. But going back to your very wise observations about burnout, I had to come to a point where, okay, I'm writing books, I'm doing media, I'm doing personal appearances. We've got the support group program. We have a nonprofit foundation something's got to give. Mm. So I decided to refocus back to where I first started. So um, the best way to find out more about our work and what we do is to go to widowsworstilettos.com. That is for people who are widowed or who know someone who is or may be facing widowhood. That is the best place to start. For people who are in the industries that serve the widowed, who are media organizations, who are um, hospitals and so forth, carolfleetspeaker.com is the place that you want to visit. Wonderful. And do you do social media at all? 
Absolutely. I am on Facebook at Carol Brody Fleet, and you've got over 10,000 friends just waiting to embrace you with open arms. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. Wonderful. So all those links will be available at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com. So do check out Carol because she's she's amazing. So Carol, the final question that we ask all of our guests, Mm -hmm. what's the meaning of life for you? For me, um, it's about betterment. It's about betterment of self first. It's about bettering the lives of the people I love. It's about betterment of the community that I serve. It's about leaving people, places and things better than when you than when you found them. And if all of us strove to do even one of those things, this world would be a really, really cool place. That is so very true. Cara Brody Fleet, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to talk to you. All the best. Thank you, Paul. It's been so much fun spending time with you. And that was Life, Passion and Business with Paul Harvey and my guest, Carol Brody Fleet. If you'd like to read the books, there are four of them. You can find them on Amazon or even in real bookshops. There are four of them. Widows Wear Stilettos. Loss is a four-letter word. When Bad Things Happen to Good Women. And Happily Ever After. Her website is widowswearstilettos.com and you can also find her speaking site, which is carolfleetspeaker.com. You can find her on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Now, all of those links can be found at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com. And while you're there, do check out the five questions under the resources tab. It's a workbook based on the five questions of the podcast. And in my opinion, it is the base point for creating the life you want to live. So do check that one out. And that's it from me for this week. So thank you so much for being on this journey with me. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please give us five stars on the app of your choosing and share it with a friend if you can. So that is it from me. As always, thank you so much for your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best.